can't get enough eye-popping, jaw-dropping, heart-stopping reality TV. It's the best. Then head to Hey You, home of reality on demand. Stream and download the latest episodes from shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Real Housewives, same day as the US. What's more fun than that? Or binge old faves like The Simple Life and The Hills. That's hot. Hey You, reality on demand. Start your one-month free trial now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. And this is a special bonus episode about Avengers Endgame. Uh, so over the course of the last couple of weeks, I've released a few episodes about Avengers Endgame. I've had a fun time talking with a lot of different people about it. Uh, and uh, so I, I've kind of recorded roughly like five hours worth of conversations about Avengers Endgame, put them onto the Internet, on the Slash Filmcast feed and on YouTube. Uh, and I was kind of ready to... Uh, put the whole thing to bed and like not talk about Avengers Endgame forever. But I read a couple pieces uh, this week that really made me feel like I, I needed to have at least one more meaningful chat about this film uh, with some very intelligent folks. So that's what I'm here to do today uh, on the Slash Filmcast. You can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com and email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. Joining me today, she is a staff writer and film critic at SlashFilm.com. Hui Chenbui, welcome to the Slash Filmcast. How are you doing today, HD? I'm good, good. How are you? I'm doing well. Glad to have you here. Uh, and also, Ingu Kang is a staff culture writer at Slate.com. Ingu, welcome to the Slash Filmcast. How are you doing today? Hello. I won't ask you how you're doing because I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate the, the <laughs> you, know, you know, I was watching one of my favorite movies before Sunset, actually, recently. And it's interesting, like, uh, Julie Delpy in that movie talks about how, you know, she misses America because Americans are all into that bullshit of, like, how, how's your day? And, like, oh, I'm doing great and all that stuff. And it, it didn't occur to me until she said that, that, like, that that's a distinctly American, like, small talk is a distinctly American thing because we've grown up with it our whole lives. Anyway, uh, I know that's probably not what you were commenting on, but I, I just wanted to throw that out there that, like, in other parts of the world, no one gives a crap how your day is going. Uh, no, it's actually Julie Delpy and me, spiritual <laughs> brain twins. <laughs> well, in any case, uh, the, the pieces that you wrote uh, that really struck a chord with me were uh, at Slate.com. Ingu wrote this piece called, The Worst Scene in Endgame is the One That's Supposed to Be the Most Feminist. Uh, and also at SlashFilm.com, HT wrote a piece called, The Women of Marvel Deserved More in Avengers Endgame. And we'll link to both of those pieces in the show notes. Uh, and before we begin, we should say we're going to spoil everything in Avengers Endgame. So if you have not seen Avengers Endgame, uh, you should wait until you've watched the movie, come back and listen to this podcast. Uh, so before we get to these pieces, I kind of am curious to hear your overall thoughts on Avengers Endgame. Ingu Kang, what did you think about the film overall, uh, girl power moment aside? I thought it was fine. I think I've seen about two thirds of the MCU movies and I definitely know that there were certain beats I didn't really get because I hadn't seen those other movies, but I had seen enough movies that the stuff that was sort of supposed to land landed really well for me. This movie has the responsibility of wrapping up storylines and emotional beats from 21 other movies. And I think it does as well as it can within like the parameters it's given. And for a three hour movie, it's actually pretty zippy. Yeah. So all of that was all very good. And I think the one thing I wasn't super expecting is that 
the movie has a bunch of bigger scenes where everyone comes together and those are usually pretty terrible because you don't know what you're supposed to look at and there's generally like too much stuff happening it's, it's like they're a, fighting like cg zombie hordes or something like that usually yeah right? yeah but then in the scenes where it's just one-on-one you remember, oh, Marvel actually cast a bunch of really terrific actors, some of whom have really great chemistry with one another. And I think that these people have worked with one another for some for as long as like 10, 11 years. It really pays off by this point. Hmm. Uh, so it sounds like you uh, overall found it to be mildly enjoyable, if, if I'm pegging your uh, opinion correctly. I- I would say even moderately enjoyable. Moderately enjoyable. Excellent. All right. HT, uh, your overall thoughts on Avengers Endgame? I actually found it to be really enjoyable, which I found a pleasant surprise, especially after Avengers Infinity War disappointed me greatly. And I think Avengers Endgame is kind of a miracle of a movie in that it is able to stand alone and stand strongly as its own film and that has something to say about grief and um, regret and loss while tying in 10 years worth of storytelling. And that really was amazing to me. Um, I really I enjoyed a lot how um, the first um, act of the film especially uh, took it slow. And it was um, quite almost meditative in the way that it approached the fallout of you know, Thanos' snap and everything. And I thought that that was so unusual for a a superhero blockbuster these days and something so bold, especially for a film that people have been anticipating so much. And I like that it was willing to just kind of take things in stride in that regard. And even when it like turns into two other movies in the second and third act, I enjoyed all of those things like the second act with the time travel shenanigans, which were really fun and zippy as Ingu said. And then the third act, um, which is the big battle and could have easily descended into visual noise, uh, was really dynamic. And, um, there are some parts that do feel a little bit like CG punching each other, but the um, the big moments in the battle um, really tie together. And it's all also something that really pays off all of that storytelling from the past 10 years. Um, so I really I like a lot that we can see this movie as just a good movie on its own, but also a product of 10 years, 22, 23 films worth of storytelling. So there is a moment in the final battle that both of you wrote about at Slate and SlashFilm.com and kind of you use that moment to to interrogate more uh, about how the MCU as a whole has treated women, right? And it's this moment mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, you both describe it so well. I'll read Ingu's description of it here. There's one bit of fan service that couldn't land more gracelessly if it were tossed off the cliff on Vormir. During the final showdown with Thanos for the fate of the universe, Captain Marvel, Valkyrie, Okoye, the Wasp, and several other female characters get information, presumably for audiences to rally around Marvel's commitment to gender equality and women's representation. Instead, the scene immediately revealed itself as the apotheosis of a studio's expectation that fans of female superheroes be satisfied with scraps while courting woke points for its supposed forward thinking. Uh, so I will I will just describe like my reaction to the moment, and then like uh, I, I will turn it over to you because I want to hear what your thoughts are. But uh, when I was watching that moment, it it like I think w- the feeling I had in the theater was like this is not for me, and I don't mean like uh, it's not like something I would enjoy, but like it it, cl- it clearly felt like it was targeted at the women in the audience, uh, and. 
I, so I, I wasn't like, yeah, go. Or, you know, I, I wasn't like, ooh, that's pandering. I just feel like it's I, – I don't even feel like I have standing to react to it, if that makes any sense. Like, I don't feel like it's – some because it's not for me, it's not really something that um, I feel good about saying even whether I like it or not. I will say that my wife uh, turned to me uh, and kind of made the, the gagging motion. Like, she, she felt it was extremely pandering and gross. Um, and it feels like her opinion of it lined up with, with what you both expressed in these pieces. So, Ingu Kang, uh, say more about your reaction to that moment. Like, as you're watching it, what was your reaction? Because you obviously put some thought into it after we wrote this piece. But, like, in the theater, what was your reaction? Uh, probably just rolling my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think this is one of those things where I don't think that I would have really cared about... I think in a big sense, we all know that the Marvel movies have a gender problem. It took 10 years for Marvel to have its first female-headed superhero movie. And so... Right, you say Marvel put out 20 movies with male protagonists, many of them brain-meltingly similar to one another, which I thought was uh, a great Ingu Kang turn of phrase. (laughs) I think this observation that Marvel has a gender issue is not interesting. The thing that really got at me and niggled inside made it a thing I felt like I should write about is when they actually, when that scene happens, it's so obviously calculated for not only the people in the audience to applaud, but then also for the audience to associate Marvel movies, Marvel as a franchise, as like like big feminist franchise. And that was the thing that really got me because it wasn't just a girl power moment to me. It was like a branding exercise. Mm -hmm. And so if they hadn't done that, I don't think that I would have really cared about the gender dynamics of the movie that I already know is working in this very heavily structured, heavily flawed structure. Marvel really wanted people to cheer on characters like Mantis and Pepper Potts in a blue Iron Man suit. I was like, are you fucking serious? I'm not going to fucking cheer for this. Where is Pepper Potts' movie? Give me that and then I will cheer. Where is where is Pepper Potts, you know, ascension to the CEO uh, of Stark Industries and like that whole movie and that whole process like uh, she's she's she has whole journey she has whole journeys that are uh, occurring off screen right between these mm-hmm. movies. Um, but uh, I think the other thing is this gap that Marvel says it's trying to fill. It's something that like, Marvel has created on its own. No one forced Marvel's ha- like hand in having no female protagonists. And so to me, that's a gangster logic. You break into someone's store and then you want to get credit for there there to be no more breaking break-ins in your store. Mm -hmm. It's gross. Yeah. That's a hilarious analogy and I I love it. (laughs) So it sounds like you, you wouldn't have written this piece if you had just seen the movie and this moment didn't happen, right? Uh, no, but because even the, though I did have issues with like the way the movie treated its two female characters, right? But ne- I, Nebula and Black Widow specifically, right? Um, yes. Uh, but but because of this scene, kind of positioning uh, Marvel as woke, as committed to representation, uh, given Marvel's track record, you found it particularly galling. Uh, 
and and that that's kind of like I guess if if you could uh, this is a question I'm curious about right and this is you know I'm c- curious for, for for both of you to answer this question. Like, Can I add something to oh, what you were just saying please, though? Please, yeah, go ahead. It's interesting to me that this is not this moment is not only the moment that they were trying to trump up. There's a scene in during like the first act leftovers where basically one of the characters in Captain America's therapy group is revealed very casually to be gay. And it's played by one of the uh, Russo brothers, who are the brothers who directed the movie. Basically, they hype it up as apparently the quote they used was exclusively gay moment. And they also wanted woke points for featuring Marvel's first gay character or something along these lines. It's this appropriation, for lack of a better word, of social movements to try to use as part of their marketing campaign. And number one, gross. Again, you're the ones who didn't include all of these other groups in the first place. And that's why, like, you filling in the lack that you created is already gross. But See, that moment would have worked, too, if um, the Russo brothers hadn't come out afterwards and patted yes. themselves on the back about it. Because it was There's a nice, so quiet moment. Padding. Yeah. Well, uh, I uh, I understand what you're saying. Like the one the one thing I do want to just make clear though, like when you say marketing, I, I mean I think we're talking like the PR campaign, right? Like specifically around um, what they like what the press cycles around this movie are, right? And like mm-hmm. what people have been writing about the movie. Like it's not necessarily in the trailer that there's like a, a gay character or that there's this girl power moment, but like it is part of the overall like narrative uh, of the movie that has been put out there. Um, mm-hmm. So that's like a very minor, uh, you know, uh, attenuation of what you're saying. But I, I just I did want to clear that up. Yeah, um, I wouldn't say this movie. I would say Marvel as a franchise. Hmm. I think where a lot of this comes from is from the success of Black Panther, because I mean, not only was Black Panther like a great movie, but obviously um, Ryan Coogler did a lot of different elements of black culture that he put into that movie like afrofuturism black feminism and basically made this really wonderful movie and i think what the marketing department did very savvily at the time is to basically take this really great cultural achievement and say like wow we're really amazed we're really amazing for like putting this out there and it's not to get like conspiratorial but also part of this like larger Disney branding exercise of making themselves look woke for a future-oriented family entertainment company, right? And so I, I think a question it may- for you. Oh, yes, continue. Sorry, um, <laughs> I didn't have to, like Glenn Beck there, but no, no worries. I mean, um, my question is, you know, Disney and Marvel are very hyper aware that they have a platform that reaches. thousands, millions of children everywhere. So do you think that, you know, this, um, because they're trying to cater to that platform, it's inherently bad? Or is it because of the way that they're approaching this way, the the platform that they have? I think if it's a movie, say, Wreck-It Ralph 2, where they actually tried very interesting things in terms of how to tell like a story about a toxic friendship or toxic masculinity within Wreck-It Ralph 2. They have this interesting revision of like all of the princess narratives. Mm -hmm. I think if it's something where they actually very 
consciously look back on like what they have been doing and what they're known for and try to forge a new path forward. I think that would be one thing. But I think the difference with Endgame is that it's not earned. They didn't do the work. Yeah, they have to do the work. Well, uh, I have a question to ask you about this, right? Well, I have a, I have a couple questions, a couple thoughts on this, right? Number one is uh, the the thing that comes to mind for me as you're as you're talking about how they didn't do the work is that, that like two things can be true simultaneously, uh, and maybe they're not true simultaneously in this case, but like. I'm going to ask you this question, Ingu. You tell me if two things can be true simultaneously, okay? Uh, thing number one, it is uh, not cool the way that uh, the MCU, uh, time after time, underrepresents minority people of minority groups. Um, and then in this instance, uh, threw some representation in there and then expected to be kind of congratulated, made it part of the PR campaign, made it part of the narrative of the movie. Um, and like that is uh, graceless to say the least, right? Like that's not cool. That's one thing. Number one. Thing number two is that it can still be a net positive uh, that there is a uh, gay character in this movie. That 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 this is a movie that's going to be seen by potentially tens, if not hundreds, of millions of people, and that seeing that representation does have some that like seeing seeing a gay character represented in a just like like fairly uh, mundane environment without calling too much attention to their sexuality uh, can have a net positive effect. How do you feel about those two things being true at the same time? Or do you feel like they're incompatible? I have this nitpicky thing about gay movies where I hate gay movies that fight for acceptance, but refuse to show gay sex. And the reason why I bring that up is because if you're going to demand credit for doing a thing, you should do it all of the way. And so I guess with this scene, we actually talked about this among the staff writers a lot, this scene about how much credit do the Russo brothers deserve for this gay milestone, or I think like someone called it like a mile pebble in this late flat. And I think Essentially, the people who weighed in who were queer were like, well, that's fine, but it's not like that character has enough of a characterization for me to relate to that character on any level. Mm -hmm. And so I think that you can make that argument that any exposure is helpful, but I guess if you can't see yourself in it, if there's nothing there, then what's the point? Uh, I think that's a really valid point. I I'll say that as somebody who grew up in like an extremely conservative Christian church, you know, and had like my uh, perspective of homosexuality, like filtered through that lens, uh, that seeing a representation like this, if I was a young kid, uh, would have been pretty revelatory to me. You know what I mean? Um, just because I, I just, you know, I, I lived in an environment, uh, where I didn't necessarily see that many representations t at all. Like just totally, if you total them up, it wasn't that many representations. Um, and so I, I, I'm kind of like looking at it from that perspective, but I also completely understand what you're saying that like, you can't just throw the reference in there and then expect, uh, that that is enough, right? If, if it's just, like, uh, that, 
there are entire stories that deserve to be told about these different subcultures and these different minority groups. Um, and there is this tension about like, do you get the quote unquote woke points um, if you don't do the work of, of, uh, of filling out that representation? Um, mm-hmm. But let's let's talk about. Uh, Can I add one more thing yeah. to that? Sorry. Sure. So I guess if we're talking about representation, if you have a character that like people are supposed to see themselves in, you can go one of two ways. You can either look at this character as a figure of identification where you relate to them, and I think that's the angle that they were going in, in terms of this person that's obviously grieving, you're obviously supposed to feel for them. You're creating this bridge between the viewer and the character. And I think that's fine. That also seems so step one, because I think if you have these characters that come from minority groups, underrepresented groups, there's also the other element of this character might be different from you in other ways and so i guess like the thing that doesn't register to me is that like that person is such a every man i get the argument why can't the gay person be an every man sure it sort of also irks me that they want credit for gay representation when there's nothing about them that is different from the audience on any level does that make sense yeah i want to say that i'm uh, somewhere in between the two of you, because um, I feel like not like just a little representation isn't enough, but I feel like the first steps are a good sign of progress, like little steps, um, especially in a big franchise like this, um, you know, are a good signal for the future. But my issue lies with the self-congratulatory nature of it all. And that's where moments like the the gay moment or the girl power moment ring hollow to me because uh, like we were saying before, they didn't do the work to get to the big moment that they want to have. But um, if they were just to acknowledge like they're trying a little bit at a time and they're trying to make their way there, but don't do like the big, you know, marquee moment, then that would be okay with me because uh, they are obviously in it for the long haul and they're aware that they have a platform that reaches thousands of children uh, that, you know, that any representation, any progress is good, but um, they need to do more work in the meantime before they go and pat themselves on the back. Well, uh, I, I really <laughs> I don't want to like, first of all, I want to make clear that I'm not coming from the position of like, yeah, Disney did an amazing job. Like they right. deserve all the praise. Like I don't feel that way. Uh, I, I feel like at the, uh, you know, that uh, as a, as a general matter that like more representation is better, even if it doesn't quite uh, it, like happen with the level of like fullness that we would all prefer. Um, but that mm-hmm. like for a movie this big, uh, you know, even like there's going to be like, uh, I'm estimating, you know, thousands of people seeing a gay character on screen for the first time uh, and that that there is some like inherent value in that. But I also think that like, yeah, um, it's only one step. Uh, And when you talk about self-congratulatory, like the self-congratulatory nature of it, um, as I've already said, like it's not necessarily like in the marketing campaign. The the directors are like are asked about it uh, at, Mm. you know. Uh, press events and so like the alternative of what they you know i'm curious i guess i'm curious like that was the question i was going to ask you is like what is the alternative is like should they not talk about it should like they say like it's you know it speaks for itself and then not say anything more or like 
kind of what is your pr- preference for how they should conduct themselves is what I'm I'm genuinely curious about. Do you guys remember that standalone Star Wars movie that came out like five years ago? Rogue One. Rogue One or Solo or Star Wars Story? I think it was like Rogue One that had like... Solo came out like two years ago. (laughs) No, not Solo. I think it was Rogue One that had these like two gay Asian uh, characters. Yeah, played by uh, Donnie Yen and um, I can't remember the other actor. Were they gay though? I mean, I, I feel like maybe it was implied, but it wasn't explicit. I thought that was implied because I remember seeing something about, oh, Star Wars finally introduced its like first gay characters or something along those lines. And to J- me... Jang Wang is, is the other guy's name. Um, thank you. Yeah. We're all bad Asians here. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, I think like to me, that was like one of those things where it felt more natural because it came from fans who wanted to see themselves represented on screen and were happy about like the greater representation in the Star Wars universes. Something like that, where the congratulatoriness comes from the fans, just feels so much less gross than, than like the celebration being like a top-down thing. Yeah, I think... And, and to be clear, like, so th- this is like in, in an, uh, a Deadline article, right? Like Joe Russo says, quote, Representation is really important. It was important to us as we did four of these films. We wanted a gay character somewhere in them. We felt it was important that one of us play him to ensure the integrity and show it is so important to the filmmakers that one of us is representing that. It is a perfect time because one of the things that is compelling about the Marvel Universe moving forward is its focus on diversity, end quote. And so I think like your your one of your beefs is with the tone of how he's saying that. Is that right? I mean, I guess. I also don't understand their logic for why one of them has to play the gay character. Sure, sure. But I, I, guess I just want to be, like, extremely precise about what we're talking about when we say, like, self-congratulatory nature is, like, they're, they're giving interviews, they're being asked about this, and they're talking about it in the way that I just described. Um, I think at a certain want- point, it just becomes, like, really impossible to separate what progress is actually being made versus what the marketing is and if we're going back to this specific scene to me this was a marketing thing that co-opted social justice i do want to say not to uh pivot from the the gay moment but i felt like the depiction of the girl power scene in and of itself was congratulatory because of the way it was positioned to be this big again, girl power moment. It felt like a coming together of all these characters, um, of, all, like, of all the female characters. But because we hadn't seen any of them interact before or because we hadn't seen, we'd seen throughout the past like 10 years of movies that they often been sidelined by the male characters, that's where it comes off hollow. And that's where the self-congratulatory nature of that scene where it's like, you know, the big moment where they're like, we we can help. And they all do their super hard power pose. And it feels like it's going to be an ad for the next like A-Force a movie where they all it's led by a female super team and stuff. So that's where, for me, I, I um, the self-congratulatory nature of that scene oh, yeah. is more I- heinous than like the, the gay, um, the gay uh, character. Yeah, I, also- I, I agree completely that like it's this one, this girl power moment is clearly like a much bigger, you know, look at how awesome we are that we're representing all these characters. Like, it feels like it, it is more obvious, the meta-textual element of, like, look at how mm-hmm. awesome the representation is, is more clearly on display uh, and more, you know, flamboyant uh, in, in the girl power scene. Um, also, as 
my friend April Wolf said, how would all of these women who are in this giant chaotic battle know the precise right moment at which to like all they line have a up woman and radar. say, and me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have some sort of like signal in which they all come together and logistically makes no sense that they all like are in the same place. And also so many of these characters are so recent. Mm. It like really drives home how women have been like or female characters have been this like complete afterthought. Yeah, yeah. so uh, HT, in your piece, you talk about Black Widow and how – um, she hasn't really she, she she hasn't really had a uh, fully formed character in your opinion. You you kind of describe her in Iron Man two. She's a steely sex pot in Avengers. She's a tortured killer, and most egregiously in Avengers: Age of Ultron, she's a tragic quote unquote monster. Um, and I think you're referring to the fact that like she refers to how she can't have children in that movie. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And you you go on here. The Russo brothers were f- the first to get a handle on a defining characterization of Black Widow and Captain America Winter Soldier, a lonely, mistrustful, reformed killer who is seeking some kind of redemption. But as the MCU became more packed with characters and stuff, Black Widow's arc was sidelined again as she was relegated simply to Captain America's right-hand man in Captain America Civil War and Avengers Infinity War, end quote. So I think one of your your issues with uh, this moment in the movie, the girl power moment in the movie, let's call it, is how these films have treated Black Widow throughout, right? Yes. Uh, as one Black of the Widow only is... major female characters in the yeah. entire franchise. Black Widow is kind of um, ground zero for how Marvel has treated their female characters in that she has been just so so inconsistent throughout all of the movies and that because of these inconsistencies, she's never been able to develop a fully formed character arc. And because Avengers Endgame especially is about taking in that history of the MCU and what it's leading up to, for her, it just fe- feels very like garbled. Um, and her arc doesn't really make any sense in terms of like what she's been doing up until now. And uh, it's a, it's a giant disservice to her as um, a character who has so much potential and shows glimmers of potential in like every version of the character that she's been in. But because the MCU has never been able to settle on something when they try to fast forward that arc in Avengers Endgame, it just doesn't land. And it feels like she's just sacrificed for the sake of man pain again. Yeah, and one of the things you point out in this article is also that uh, at the end of the movie, like Black Widow is one of the permanent deaths of the film Avengers Endgame, right? And mm-hmm. but at the end of the movie, like no one even mentions her seemingly, right? Like no one even gives a credit. It's all about Tony Stark dying, and like yeah. no one even gives a shit about Black Widow. Uh, Tony Stark gets this big elaborate funeral, and Black Widow gets one mention from Hawkeye. Well, also uh, uh, Hulk threw a bench. As well, that also yes. was a thing. Yeah, this is what, like they have their little moment of man pain, and then the, <laughs> all the action happens. Tony gets that big funeral at the end, and then and as Hawkeye and Scarlet Witch are talking about their losses, she, uh, Black Widow finally gets a mention, but otherwise she's just completely gone from the picture. Uh, so, Ingu, in your article, you talk about uh, the Nebula and Gamora character arcs kind of also being short shrifted. In watching Endgame again, which I, I, I went to the theater again this past Saturday and I rewatched it, and I was like, you know what? The most intriguing things to me about this film 
were the nebula aspects of it um and like and i don't mean intriguing like oh they did a great job with the nebula stuff like i'm like ooh, I, I really wish they had gone more down that path there's a moment earlier on in the movie where thanos is in his like hut uh and trying to relax and then he says you know you know daughter perhaps i treated you too harshly and that's the, his last words before his head is cut off and it just hinted at this whole kind of um tragic relationship that these two had that i felt like we didn't didn't really have room to breathe because the movie's trying to do too much right um can you say more about like what you had hoped for from the nebula character in this movie i don't know if i had any hopes for her but i feel like with this movie and the guardians of the galaxy movies it's really obvious that if you wanted a drama that was focused on Thanos' relationship with his two daughters and how, like, incredibly fucked up their relationship became because he would always pit them against each other. And how, like, one of them was basically, like, brainwashed into, like, being murderous toward the other. And then this whole, like, reconciliation that they had because the father happened decided he was going to kill one of his daughters in order to, like, make himself more powerful. If this was, like, a human story, this could be, like, a 10-episode season on HBO. Like, there is so much emotional texture there, and there are so many different elements of this. And so there's something really gruesome to me about how... First, uh, what's his name? James. James Gunn. Yes. James Gunn gave these two sisters this like really gruesome history. Didn't really do anything with it. As like a very quick aside, in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, you find out that Quill's father killed his mother with and you have like this like other domestic abuse story that's something that like we move pretty quickly away from because it's just like an impetus for quill to like kill his dad as like a result of it you have these stories of emotional of like incredible emotional suffering by these female characters that are never told within the full blossom that it deserves because we gotta go shoot the bad guys or punch them or whatever. I wholly agree with you, Ingu, because um, I feel like the the main failing of the Guardians of the Galaxy films are that they focus so much on Peter Quill when Gamora and Nebula are the infinitely more compelling and fascinating characters who really deserve the, that central focus uh, for the films. So uh, I do like that she gets to sort of live out some of her arc in this film. Um, and I will say I, I do actually like kind of where it goes, although it does feel like it falls a little bit short of where um, she grapples with the abuse that went, she went through. But um, yeah, I, I agree with you, Ingu. I think just like even their reunion here, where Nebula realizes that she gets this like, second chance with Gamora, but then it turns out like she has to like kill herself basically in order to like make that happen. Just like, I feel like that's so much emotional complexity there. And this idea that like maybe at some point, like she really wasn't salvageable as a person, but, and so you have this like extremely heavy, dark stuff. And then like next scene, like (laughs) potato of the, of the gauntlet. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. You write here in your article, uh, Endgame's pat appeal to sisterhood, which unites Nebula and Gamora, is symptomatic of its overall treatment of female characters as walking applause lines first and people slash space aliens second. Fans are ready to clap for their female favorites, but Marvel should give them something to cheer for first, end quote. Um, and so, like, I, I think one of your points... I think really harsh, you guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> you, you think? Um, I mean, I think one of the things that... that uh this points to is the idea that like the the movie introduces like both b- between black widow and gamora like the in- the movie introduces all this idea of female suffering right without um without really exploring it meaningfully uh and that that you know makes a girl power style moment feel more hollow as a result is that is that fair to say yes i think sure. even going back to Black Widow's like whole self-described monster thing. I had forgotten this until a friend had reminded me. The reason why she is infertile is because she was forcefully sterilized. And so basically for a woman who was, again, sterilized like against her will to then call herself a monster for her incons- for her inability to have children is just such bad writing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So so the the MCU overall has uh has some stuff to answer for. I think is what you're saying. I mean, you know what? You want to make crappy movies where you write women terribly. That's fine. Don't pat <laughs> yourself on the back for it. Right. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, so the question I was going to ask you earlier and actually there's some someone in the chat room also has asked the question is like if you let's say you were like uh movie god, you know, you could go and like change movies to your will right um would you remove the girl power moment like do you think the the universe is worse off as a result of this moment in the film wait how much of movie god powers do we have, you have let's say you have complete i mean uh i i, I want to hear your complete movie god powers so like let's say you complete but like for the purposes of this first question um you can only alter this movie how about that mm. because because and the reason i ask right is because uh, there are people who enjoyed that moment, right? And like, didn't like, this is interesting? It's interesting to see like the reaction to this movie is like, um, uh, I've seen pieces about like Thor being uh, uh, fat, right? And like how yeah. like some people believe that the movie is engaging in fat shaming, and other people think that uh, they, they watch the movie and they feel seen by the movie, right? And I, I feel like both of those reactions are valid reactions to have. And so I'm curious, like, if you feel like in this case, it, it is also a valid reaction to have enjoyed that moment. Or is it, like, completely bad and should be stricken from the record? I, I, I don't personally, like I said, I don't feel like I have a stake in it. But, like, I'm curious what you think about it. I don't think it's um, bad to have that reaction to the, to the moment because I do think people's feelings of um, – of joy and empowerment are valid in terms of when they experience and see that moment. Um, for me, if I were to change this movie in any way, I'd definitely change Black Widow's arc and give her something a little bit more coherent and something that's a little less just emotional labor and grief before she dies. Um, but for me, that moment, I wouldn't exactly strike it completely from the film, but maybe alter it in a way where it feels more organic and maybe it's not like every single female character that ever exists in the MCU showing up in this one tiny like 
area of land, but maybe characters who know each other, characters who have met before, or characters who have some sort of geographic closeness to each other. Um, for me, yeah, I think if if there was some sort of build up to this moment, if we had seen any of the other female characters outside of Nebula and Scarlet uh, and um, Black Widow, if maybe like Captain Marvel, who is at the centerpiece of this moment, had not just been, doesn't just show up at the beginning and then disappear and then show up at the end for this big girl power moment. If she was able to um, have more, uh, a larger presence throughout this film and be able to like make connections with other female characters or other characters in general, then this moment would work for me. Yeah. Speaking of like being movie god, I also think the idea that it's Scar- uh, I'm sorry, Black Widow that sacrifices herself and not Hawkeye uh, f- does feel a little bit odd to me in retrospect because it feels like that is Hawkeye's arc. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like he lost his family and then like became a terrible version of himself, like a shell of his former self. And then like, oh, his uh, but his final redemption is to sacrifice himself for the good of the world. Uh, that feels like a like an arc to me, and for like yeah, that especially because yeah. he killed a bunch of randos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a bunch of that random Asian people. That's right. to me too. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and then, but then for like uh, Black Widow to take that role, it just feels like there's just not doesn't really feel like there's enough there. You know, I guess they, they've been friends, and like I think um, he uh, he spared her life. I think it was uh, what the storyline was in the Avengers, right? Um, when he was on a on a mission. Uh, and so there is like some connection there and it, it's not like completely out of left field, uh, yeah. but it, it does – given all the other things we've discussed about how the movie – the only moment you have of mourning Black Widow is like right after they come out of the time machine and uh, there's that look on you know uh, Steve Rogers and Hulk's face as, as they realize that Hawkeye's lost Black Widow. Uh, it, it does feel like kind of uh, a missed opportunity to kill Hawkeye. Uh, all yeah, that said, Black Widow's arc. Oh, I want to say uh, yeah. Black Widow's arc does feel incomplete going from A to C because you see at the beginning that she is really taking hard the um, the snapping, the fact that like they failed the world and like everyone else is doing the same, but she uh, for some for some reason is taking it even worse uh, than the others, and um, her motivations are just kind of have always been in flux, but it feels like her central um, uh, motivation, like her central driving factor here is that she has always wanted a family. She's always wanted some community in which she can trust. Um, and like the, for her, the Avengers were that. And like the fact that half of them are gone is why she's so determined to get them back and just sacrificing herself for her family Right. To get back her family, but then not actually get to join her family makes no sense to me. Yeah, it, it, you know, you actually described it quite beautifully about like that. That is really her arc is like about family. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess if you put it like that, HT, it's basically like a crapshoot between the two of them. Um, mm-hmm. They both they both have pretty solid motivations. Uh, but no, basically, ScarJo <laughs> should have like gone and like been. She could have been like a second mom. In like Hawkeye's family, right. and then everybody mm. would have been happy. And yeah. you know what? ScarJo is supposed to have her own movie. No one is clamming for a Hawkeye movie. I do not understand its <laughs> decision at all. It's true. It's true. Maybe I, I, it felt to me like Scarlett Johansson's contract has run out after ten years, and she can no longer be in it. Like it felt more motivated by that than any mm-hmm. organic character uh, developments. Um, she's getting her prequel movie, so that's not exactly true. 
Yeah, yeah. Do we know it's a prequel movie, Ingu? I'm sorry, uh, HT? I, I can't tell the difference between you do. Um, <laughs> wow. We do, <laughs> we do know it's a prequel movie. I think it's explicitly been said that. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, it has to be at this point. Mm-hmm. So, Ingu, uh, if you could be movie god, would you take the the girl power moment out of this movie? I think I know the answer, but, but curious what your thoughts are. Yes. You, you think the world is just worse? <laughs> you think the world is just worse off to have this moment in there? This article that I wrote went up a bunch of people that I know personally either messaged me or texted me about how much they loved that moment, and so <laughs> I think one of the reasons why I wanted to get at this scene and how people really wanted to cheer is that people really are invested for like in these movies feminism right Mm. and so it's just sad to me that you just get this hollow version of something people really do want and thirst for and arguably something that is like needed in the world if my friends want to enjoy this scene for what it is that's fine but i think all of my friends are reasonable enough that they will acknowledge, like, maybe, I don't know, like, Mantis isn't everyone's, like, top five character. Um, but if they want to, like, cheer for Marvel's, like, feminism, like, I mean, corporate feminism has won. Like, this is a <laughs> you know. You're, you're fighting a losing battle, is what you're saying. Um, but, Let me uh, be cranky in my corner. Uh, I, I I think you know the way you put it in your opening paragraph is is good is like that you are not satisfied with the scraps from Marvel's table pretty much is that is that accurate right like that you consider this scraps and like uh, you want the full meal is that a fair way to describe it yes where's my Valkyrie movie give me my Valkyrie movie and then I will cheer for her <laughs> otherwise like. <laughs> you get like 40 minutes of her in Thor 3, the third installment of a movie, and then she shows up here and we're supposed to like lose our minds. Fuck you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, I think uh, I understand your perspective. I really appreciate uh, both of you sharing it. Is there anything else we didn't cover that you want to mention before we wrap this up? I will say that like I see where Marvel was coming from in terms of just like – trying to bring some more representation to their platform, but the way they're going about it is the wrong way because of that self-congratulatory nature and um, just like their track record in general. And if they do want to take steps forward, then um, they should work harder behind the scenes uh, and in ter- and just like drive and work, focus on the characters versus uh, focusing on the marquee moments that those characters serve. I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Ingu Kang is a staff culture writer at Slate. She also wrote this article. The worst scene in Endgame is the one that's supposed to be the most feminist. Ingu, thanks for joining me today. Where can people find more of your work on the internet? Slate.com. <laughs> HT, uh, you've wrote, written this piece at Slash Film called The Women of Marvel Deserve More in Avengers Endgame. Where can people find more of your work on the internet? You can find me at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at htranbuie. All right, and uh, thanks for listening to this episode of the Slash Filmcast. You can find more episodes at SlashFilmcast.com. And next week, we are going to be back. Uh, I think we're going to be reviewing Detective Pikachu. I think that movie comes out this week, right? 
Yes. Um, so, yeah. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's what we'll be discussing next week on the Slash Filmcast. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode. We'll see you later. I'm the only one that remembers the Beatles. Hello, I'm Guy Garvey. Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle have joined forces for yesterday. We got them together to talk filmmaking. I always saw Trainspotting just as the Northern Four Weddings. Music. These songs were part of us. And a world without the Beatles. A world without the Beatles would be infinitely worse. The Yesterday Podcast, available from wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who?